Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I am honored to have on a guest who is an MD, full-time physician. He, uh, as an internal medicine specialist living in the LA area, loves medicine, but he's also someone who's passionate about entrepreneurship. He got to a point where he wasn't feeling like he had financial security or control over his time. And so today he is just doing all kinds of different businesses and still practicing medicine about 75% of the time. Please help me welcome Dr. Paray Parikh. Welcome, sir. Hey, Dave. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, yes. Glad to have you here, my friend. And I always like to just kind of start out with, you know, how, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? How were you thinking about money? So I started in, uh, born and raised in San Jose, California, up north. My dad was an engineer, but his parents always wanted him to be a doctor. So they're like, ah, to make my grandparents happy, you have to be a doctor. But, you know, it's something I was always interested in. I was always interested in medicine and more importantly, just interested in how things work. And, you know, the human body, just knowing how things work and uh, science. And, it, you know, it was kind of easy for me to kind of go down that path because it was it was interesting. Absolutely. And so you grew up kind of middle class kind of lifestyle. And uh, in, in California, where things are always boom and bust in real estate, were your parents investors of any sort or what was it like for you growing up? No. So, you know, my dad was born in this small town, which we visited a couple thousand people in the middle of nowhere, India. And he uh, became, he went to an engineering school and was sponsored for a visa and got a master's back in the seventies, you know? So education has always been super important part of our lives. And it helped us really get out of real poverty, you know, poverty in a third world country that was pretty bad. And, uh, you know, my dad, you know, wasn't rich when he first started, but he's able to not only support himself, but bring his whole extended family. So now all my cousins and uncles all live here and we were able to sponsor them and help them get on their feet when they came here. Wow. So he really helped to pull everyone over. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, you know, you need an anchor. And I feel like every family has one of those. And, you know, we're fortunate to be able to do that for everyone else. Amazing, amazing. So was he someone just growing up in poverty? Was he just really tight with money? Or was he just someone so generous and helping, you know, family come over? What, what was he like? A little bit of both, you know. Now I, I always thought I was, you know, probably maybe lower middle class. And because I didn't get most of the stuff I wanted. And now I realize that it wasn't like that. I was, you know, 
right in the middle of middle class, but my parents were good about not giving me everything I wanted. You know, uh, I went to a, a couple of years. I went to a private school. You know, I um, went to a university for college, and uh, my parents helped me with that. So education, they they spent. You know, they didn't worry about any expenses, but everything else, like I didn't have the newest video game system or the newest shoes or clothes or anything like that. But you know, helped me kept modest and made me hungry for uh for investments for doing being successful in the future and you know that's something that i actually think about a lot like uh, now that i have a son a 17 month old how am i gonna give them a good life but also uh make sure that they're not spoiled well of course you have another half there that gets to help make some of those decisions yeah 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 well she just wants to spoil them so <laughs> I, I i get to be the bad cop of the relationship Hey, you know, you're bad cop in some things, good cop in other things, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. So you grew up in, in that kind of mentality, emphasis on education. You go to your undergrad, and it sounds like you, you knew you wanted to be in medicine. Did I capture that right? Yeah, yeah. So I knew I wanted to med- be medicine, but I also, you know, I tried a lot of stuff. I was a marine uh, microbiologist for a while um, at Scripps uh, Institute of Oceanography, one of the premier places in the world for that. I uh, worked at Fire, uh, Pfizer at, uh, as a molecular biochemist, you know, and kind of did a lot of interesting stuff, but kind of uh, ended up coming back to medicine always. So that, that you ended up starting later going to medical school then? Like how, how old were you when you started medical school? I started in 2009. So I was, I was in my mid-20s. You know, I didn't, I didn't go that kind of traditional route. And actually nothing of my medical career is very traditional. You know, I, I did a lot of different stuff. And, you know, I was mid-20s. So, you know, not super old, but not, you know, 21, 22, like a lot of other people. Were you investing then a little bit between undergrad and med school? Because, you know, you're out in the real world I was not uh, investing in fun, I'd say, you know, uh, and living it up and in terms of vacations and hanging out with friends. And, you know, that's actually something that I carry forward. Um, I, I talk a lot about uh, on my podcast about gradual retirement, and I think it's important to have fun along the way. You know, it might make your financial plans or your retirement a little bit later, but you just never know. You know, we had, um, my, my wife's best friend, uh, passed away from breast cancer. She was 34. You know, you just never have an idea of what's going to happen. If you keep doing delayed gratification, you know, us doctors are kings and queens of delayed gratification, but, and I'm not saying go out and buy a boat, you know, it's probably a boat is never a good idea. Uh, but you know, go on a couple of vacations, maybe buy that car you wanted. Don't buy everything, right? Don't buy the house, the car and, uh, the boat, but you could probably buy one of them and afford it, uh, and enjoy life. Uh, cause you, you just never know, you know? So you, you made a little bit of money, you enjoy in life, you go to medical school, a little little older than, than some of your peers. What happened with debt during that time? Like, were your parents helping with your education or were you on your own and getting some student loans? What was that like? A little bit of both. Uh, so uh, I was very conscious of the debt that I'd get. So, you know, I, I remember I would qualify for 20000 every every semester, you know, 20 to 25,000. So a hundred thousand a year. And I thought that was ridiculous. Why are they giving me so much money? And the money was at 7%, right? So I looked at what my tuition was and I had a little, little bit for living expenses. 
and uh, that's it. You know, I tried to take the minimal and, you know, it's, that's, uh, that's also the safety net that I had. I could always ask my dad for, you know, a couple hundred, a couple thousand bucks if I was short and, you know, I'm very blessed to have that ability. Uh, but, you know, I would try to maximize the loans for what I needed, you know, knowing that I could cover the difference. Uh, and, you know, I did some odd end jobs, like I would buy and sell stuff on eBay to try to make a little extra money, you know, a couple thousand bucks, nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, but yeah, so I was very conscious with how much loans I took and tried to take the very minimal while uh, it's very easy to just hit that check mark. I want to take the maximum amount. And then your money's just sitting there. Uh, and it's, you know, accruing at 7% interest or whatever it was. You came out of medical school with debt yeah. and you, uh, you start practicing where you're working for a hospital system. I would imagine being a hospitalist in internal medicine or what, what did you do? Sorry. One more thing about yeah, the debt. Um, I maximized my, I might forget the, the terms. I think it was the Stafford loans, the ones that didn't accrue interest. So I was very conscious with which loans I would maximize. Right. And the, the grad plus the one that was at like some stupid 7% plus, I would try to take the least amount of that as possible. So uh, I think you can go in and decide like, hey, here is what makes sense and here's what doesn't. So um, I did that. Anyone that that maybe uh, has a has a kiddo as a medical student, if you're a medical student listening to this, think about the subsidized, what he's talking about, subsidized Stafford loans versus unsubsidized Stafford loans versus a, another level of, uh, of loans, the FFEL or what, whatever it is now. Um, so just keep those different layers in mind. Very smart financial thing to, to do that. So obviously you had some entrepreneurial spirit in you already doing eBay yeah. <laughs> and and selling some stuff there. You get to practice now. Are you um, you did your your residency, I guess? Yeah. And got to be a hospitalist. Was was there any delay in that time frame, or you just kind of went straight through at this point? No, I started right away. I started like the first day. We graduated in June thirtieth, and I started like July fourteen. Uh, that's because we had that's the earliest I could start. I was like, I'm ready to go. Uh, and I did, I did some moonlighting in residency as well. Um, just make a little extra money, but you know, in residency, mostly I just broke even, you know, if I, if if all my credit cards were paid off and rent was paid off, I considered that a win. Yeah, absolutely. Making 50 grand a year. I mean, you know, with that debt piling up in LA that, that is, I can't even imagine that today, you know, it'd be, be even harder. So once, once you get to practicing, you said you did work for a hospital system. Uh, well, so no. So in uh, in L.A. or in California, you're not allowed to work for a hospital directly. Oh, you have to work for a group. So the group is uh, hired by the hospital and the group does everything. So uh, even Kaiser, there's a Kaiser medical group. A lot of people don't know that you don't actually get hired by Kaiser. You get hired by a group. I got hired by a group uh, that is, yeah, it's 1099. So that, that's kind of interesting too, compared to W2. And that's something I was interested in. Interesting. So that was um, by, by contract yeah. and being contracted. What, what now was your investment journey like? Like now that you're practicing, you're making some dough, you got medical student debt that you're thinking you got to pay off at some point, I'm sure. What, what were you doing now? at this point? Like, had you met your wife, for example? Yeah. So my interest rate, I think it was a blended 6.5% in total, right? So if you take all the interest rates and you weight it and you combine it, so 6.5 is a lot. And if I am investing, I have to make more than a guaranteed 6.5%. 
right? So I thought I really need to pay that off because 6.5 is a lot, you know, even though real estate does 10 to 15%, you know, in a downturn, it does worse. So let me get rid of that as quickly as possible. And, you know, there's, there's tips and tricks, but you just need money. So I just, you know, in residency, I was working 26 shifts a month, 12 hour shifts. And that's normal for residency. So I thought, okay, let me cut that down a little bit. Normal is 14 for a hospice, but I was working 20 to 22. So, you know, I was working one and a half times normal. And so I made one and a half times as much as a hospice. So I paid off all my loans. I think I only had like 150 um, when I graduated. I paid that off in a year. Wow. Uh, And then I also had money left over to buy my first property. And like a home or investment? Uh, I bought a four unit, so a small apartment complex. And did you say you were married by this time or no? I was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I actually met um, I met my wife the first night I moved to LA. Was she a doctor as well or what's... She's a nurse practitioner, but at the time she was a nurse. All right. So NP and uh, she was a nurse at the time. And so you're, you didn't buy a primary residence. You decided to buy a investment property. Yep. Why? Why, why did you decide not to buy primary residence and do a rental? Yeah, because it's all about creating assets and buying assets that are making you money, right? And the house is something that is going to potentially lose you money, right? And it, it just wasn't the right time for us. Uh, and we knew that we wanted to have a family and we wanted to buy a house that we would have a family. But if I bought the investment property first, that would help pay for the mortgage for the eventual house. So it's kind of a strategic decision. Were you rent hacking? Were you stayed in one of the the units out of the four? No, 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 no. It was a four unit, so you don't want to live right next to your uh, your tenants, especially when you have three other groups of tenants. I, I think uh, had I been single, I probably would have bought a duplex and lived on one side and just kept upgrading. But you know, um, I had to. I had a wife at the time and a dog. And so, you know, we had a small apartment complex. Uh, or we, we rented a small apartment to, for us to live in. And was that something driven by you, by her? Both of you said we just love real estate. Like, who's, whose decision is this? I think both of us, yeah. yeah. She loves owning active real estate. Um, I like passive real estate, uh, meaning I invest as a small investor into large apartment complexes. But we both like real estate. Got it. But this one you owned 100% yourself. Correct. And you had paid off your student loans. So then this was something like, how much was this? Like, give us an idea as, as for someone starting out. The down payment was 225. 225K. Yeah. Were you guys saving in 401Ks or anything like that? Or 403Bs? Uh, I did I did some, I did a little bit of 401K, uh, maybe like 20, 30,000, but uh, most of the money was saved for this. So you just doing extra shifts, you know, how did you afford a $225,000 down payment? A lot of shifts. A lot of shifts. But, you know, it, it was also kind of like the loans, you know, you pick the shifts that earn you more money. So, you know, there were shifts that got bonuses. I, I only work nights. So there's a night differential. Um, there was extra couple hundred bucks a night if you uh, take all the phone calls, cross cover. So uh, there was a bonus depending on how many patients you saw. So it all kind of added up to making a lot more than a normal hospitalist makes. So, you know, I think you you could be intentional with the type of job you want and with what goal you have, you know. So there's that job 
is and was not sustainable, right? Um, and uh, now I'm in the same group, but in a different position. So I knew I would do that for a year or two um, to get to where I wanted to go. And, you know, you got to make, you have to make some sacrifices if you want something, right? Like you, you, I could have sacrificed my lifestyle. You know, I lived in downtown LA, which was probably a lot more expensive if I lived in the suburbs, but it's something that I wanted to do. And if I had to work an extra shift or two a month, I was okay with that. Interesting. So you, you made it. And why that property? Can you walk us through, you know, just think of you're, you're someone else is starting out. They want to do what you did. Like why that fourplex? Why not a duplex? Why not buy a, a single family home? So you get economies of scale, the more you own, right? And, but if you have more than five, then you have to get a commercial loan. And that's a lot more difficult to get. I got a loan under my own name, so four or less. So the, the max you can get is four for a residential loans. So that's what, so I was like, okay, let me look at, and, but I did look at duplexes. Let me look at duplexes, triplexes, and four units. And I knew I wanted Long Beach because that's the one area in LA that's close to the water and still affordable. And so I looked at hundreds of units. I would be on MLS, uh, which is a service that lists things for sale on it all the time. And actually this property, real estate agents like to post their stuff at uh, midnight. So, cause if they post it before midnight, then it counts as a whole day and you don't want a ton of days on your property that no one bought it. So I just happen to be on and I get an email every time a property gets, uh, that meets my criteria. And the other advantage I had, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister is a real estate agent. So I texted her at like 2 a.m. I'm like, hey, let's go look at this property. And 7 a.m. I got off my shift, went straight to the property, looked at it, liked it, put down an offer. And I was in it. I was under escrow later that day. What I think what what I would like to point out to everybody just in, in your journey here, it wasn't like you just looked at two properties. And you were like, okay, I'm just going to do this. You weren't in a hurry. You weren't in a rush to make a decision. You really took your time looking at hundreds of properties to find the right one. Now, what year was this in, in your journey? This was in 2019. 2019, so just a few years ago. And so real estate was hot then at that time, right? I mean, you know, this is well past the 0809 crash. Things are on the rise, you know, the Nike swoosh for for everything. Was was it like a competitive bidding process, you know, to get this property or No, I actually got a discount. It's all about speed, right? So either you're the first one to give a full price offer and people will take it, right? Or you kind of take time to decide. You know, I've realized in business that speed is very important, right? And you got to think about, you know, there's a four quadrant, right? There's decisions that are important and decisions that are reversible and irreversible, right? So decisions that are important but reversible, like this one, like going under escrow, you, you need to make it quick, right? Because if I found something wrong with the property, yeah, I'd lose a couple bucks, but maybe a couple hundred, but the upside is so much higher, right? Uh, so you gotta, you gotta try to make decisions and you put it through that framework, right? So is it, is it important and reversible, right? Make those quick. Is it not important and reversible? Make those quick. Is it not important and irreversible? Still make those quick, right? Like getting a haircut. You can't reverse your haircut, but it's not important, right? So you shouldn't spend more than like 10 minutes deciding on what you wanna get your haircut. But 
out of the four quadrants, there's one that is important and irreversible. And so those are really important that you spend 95% of your time on. Got it. Got it. No, I think those are a great framework for people to think about. Um, so with, with this one property at this one time, like were there tenants in it? Were you going to fix it up? You know, what, what, what was that like? Because I'm sure you're thinking generally the most thing is you want to push up rents, right? I mean, that's how you're going to make money, whether you're improving it. And, you know, sometimes people leave an empty spot in it and then do one at a time or don't do it at all. And they're just, you know, milking the cow of, of cash flow. Like, what, what was it like for you? Yeah. So I haven't really done much to it. It's been cash flowing since day one. You know, there's been issues. There's always issues. But for the most part, it hasn't been uh, required much input. But that's also because it was, it was pretty expensive when I first bought it. You know, it was almost a million dollars, a little bit under. So you expect at that price that you're getting something that's pretty much ready to go. And what I've heard from other people is usually, you know, the smaller the the size of unit, the more hands-on you have to be. Like a property manager typically isn't going to manage a fourplex. You know, they might manage 20 doors or 30 doors or 50 doors. Were you doing self-managing of this, this initial investment? Oh, no, no, no. Because you should, whenever you do something like this, and really anything, you should think about how am I going to scale up? And so my thought at the time was, hey, I'm going to buy one property a year, every year. Obviously not the same size. You know, I don't make that much money, but uh, one property a year. And so how do I make this immediately scalable? So I did have property management and, you know, they've been managing since day one. Didn't have any issues with property management of a smaller unit like this? No. So um, you can actually get it. Uh, you might be thinking of uh, on-site property management. So you, it really does only make sense on-site to have over 150 units. And that's why our real estate company, we usually buy 200 plus. So you start with this one, and then your goal is to do one every year. So give, give us a... F- flash forward now here we are three years later like did you did you keep on doing one a year for a little bit covid hit hit you know and then real estate prices went crazy interest rates crazy low walk us through what's been happening yeah uh you know i realized after my first one that i got really lucky you know i had gone through hundreds but i went through hundreds after and i couldn't find another property it was a home run you know um i thought it was just kind of a line drive and so what i found after that is passive real estate meaning that you just like a company and a company stock you invest in the a company and they go out and buy syndications or big apartment complexes like we do for 200 plus and you get all the benefits all the depreciation all the tax benefits but they do all the work you know for a small fee and but you get huge economies of scale right kind of like what you were talking about on-site property management and i realized like you know even the apartment that i lived in in la it was It was like one of these types of investments, you know, it's not just one dude that's super rich that owns this $50 million property uh, or woman, but it's a group of investors just like me that all put in, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 and there's a couple hundred of them and they are able to buy an investment. So I looked at that and I realized that there's not that much information out there because up until 2012, this was only allowed for really rich people. 2012, the law changed to make it so that more regular people like us could invest in these deals. So I went to my business partner. I'm like, hey, we should make a course. Like we should teach other doctors to do that, to do this, to invest in these deals. And we did that because at the time there weren't any books or anything like to help people. And, you know, we did that for a couple of years and 
we've had thousands of people graduate and do their own investments. I think last we checked, we had like 500 million invested or something crazy like that um, through our students. But after a while, people said, hey, we trust you. We like this stuff, but we don't have time to do like all the vetting, talking to all these people. And you guys are already doing it for your own investments. Why don't we just invest in the same people that you're investing in? Maybe we can all come together and get a bigger pot of the pie, maybe get better terms. And so that's how we created Ascent. You know, we aggregated all our capital and we'd have a small piece of the deal, you know, a couple million. But over time we've grown and now we can take down a whole apartment complex ourselves, you know, 200, 300, uh, 250 all ourselves. And we're able to really get a lot of negotiating power and bargaining power because we do that. And now a commercial break. Well, my friends, you have probably heard I am now a completely independent financial advisor. And, and as the time that uh, I, I am recording this, the stock market is down. Now, there's a lot of question in terms of where is the market going? Where should I be investing my money? There's no better time than now to get a review of your portfolio and make sure that you are set up properly. As a matter of fact, tax season is around the corner too. Maybe you're looking for some tax, tax strategies and hints and you want someone to talk it over with besides your CPA. Feel free to give my assistant Kyla a call at 612-284-2409 to set up a free 30-minute strategy session with me. Again, call 612-284-209 to set up a free 30-minute strategy session with me. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And now back to the show. So usually in this world, the way I think about it, there, there is the operator that's operating and dealing with the rent and collecting rent and getting the place filled, you know, keeping up with stuff. And then there's, there's kind of the, the funding company, you know, the finance behind it. So it sounds like you're not really doing operating, you're finding operators in, in different spots and you're more on the financial side. Am I understanding that right? Or am I misunderstanding? That is correct. That is correct. We have, you know, we're, we're a little bit of both. So we do do all the funding, uh, but we also have an asset management team. So because the operator is focusing on the day to day maintenance, leasing, all that stuff that's really important, but doesn't move the needle in terms of profit, our team really just focuses on how do we increase rents? How do we maximize profit? Like, should we bring in covered parking? You know, all that stuff. And we're able to do that because the operators run in the day to day and we kind of see the bigger picture. So it's not just, you know, provide all the funding because that's what, you know, even some other doctor groups do. So all the principals, including me, all three of us are physicians still practicing and other doctors do something similar, but they don't have the asset management team uh, that we do. And we really feel like we're able to really maximize profit. But also, we're really looking to see how do we maximize downside protection, you know? So, you know, I tell people it's like having two primary care doctors, you know, up until a certain point, like having more eyes on your chart, when thing gets done, it's a good thing, right? Like at, at all the, you know, Cedar sinai Yale, you get a group of doctors and they're all, their only goal is to make sure you're successful. And we 
practice uh, real estate the same way we practice medicine. You know, it's good to work hand in hand, uh, but also transparency, integrity, honesty. Uh, and, you know, our, our doctors really like that. Awesome. Now we've gone, um, what a change in environment from 2019 when you started really getting in, into this where interest rates just cratered, right? Like 10-year treasuries were one and a half percent. People could get mortgages for two and three quarters. You know, here we are today recording this in um, late October of 2022. And, you know, a 10-year treasury is four point something now. And many primary mortgages are six and a half, pushing maybe to 7%. And I can only imagine on a commercial basis, it's probably similar, if not more expensive. And you have to make these decisions of how, from what I've said, most commercial financing, it's not like a 30-year fixed. You know, usually you're on a five-year arm or a 10-year arm. And this, this can drastically change your rate of return. So walk us through the change in environment and how you're thinking about it, how you're navigating it. I mean, gosh, if it it was me, I'm not sure I would be investing right now. Wait for some pain to happen in this thing. So curious to gather your thoughts there. Yeah. And by ARM, you mean uh, adjustable rate mortgages, right? And I actually recommend even uh, regular people to get adjustable rate mortgages. I actually got one uh, on my house last year and it's a 10-1, meaning it's fixed for 10 years and then it gets adjustable. But the interest rate's 2.37%, which is insane for 10 years, you know? And the goal is that I'll have paid off, you know, a good chunk of the house. And when I refinance in 10 years, uh, it would be, you know, pretty cheap, but my hope is to sell it before that. And that's kind of the same thing about commercial. The longer loan you get, the more expensive it's going to be if you sell the house. Because look at it as if you're a bank. If you're a bank and you say, hey, Pernay, we really like this property. We just spent, you know, $50,000 worth of manpower to make sure you're a good investment. And we expect couple hundred thousand dollars worth of interest in the next five years and if tomorrow i go you know i'm kidding here's all your money back plus one day of interest you're not going to be happy right because you're going to be down all this money and risk and effort and you had told your investors that you're expecting a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of profit from this deal right so they're not happy when you pay off your loan early so instead what they do, what uh, you can get are adjustable loans. And they have a small penalty if you pay it back early, but not a ton. And what you can do is you can buy a cap rate. So that means, and uh, we have a current property that's about to close. We said, hey, it's a 10-year loan. It's adjustable. But we're gonna, for the next three years, our interest rate is capped at 5%. So then you, get, you have the optionality with selling the property early with a minimal payment prepayment penalty, but you also have fixed debt, you know? So the nice thing about commercial is that you can get all these different types of debt and the one that makes sense. But, you know, you also have to look at like what happens if interest rates are bad in three years, like, and your cap runs out, right? What are you going to do? Are you going to be able to afford another one? Like for this deal specifically, we are, uh, you know, we can refinance out, we can sell the property, we can buy another cap. There's a lot of optionality. And the loan period is 10 years, which is longer than most that we're getting. But it's, we think it's important to get a long loan period. Because after three years or five years, we don't want the loan company to be like, hey, we're really hurting. We want you to pay back the loan now, you know. So the 10 years gives us 
a lot of space to breathe easily, and then we can figure out what to do about the the cap later. So I I think that the answer is really you have to change. You know, you can't just keep doing the same thing. So like I told you, we normally buy two hundred plus, two fifty plus units. This current one we're buying is one hundred twenty units. So something different, something that flies under the radar for most other groups like ours. And that's why we're able to get such a good deal on it. So, you know, when your uh, audience are looking for investments, like look at what they're doing in the past. And if it's the same exact thing as right now, it's actually a yellow flag, if not a red flag. Well, what do you think about, you know, just cap rates got so compressed from everything I ever understand because interest rates were so low. From what I am seeing, which you, you would know the multifamily space way, way better than I am, we haven't seen that reverse course yet, even though interest rates have risen. And cap rates are, they even confuse me sometimes. The way I like to think about cap rates is that it's the market sentiment and it's kind of inverse. So the lower the market, the cap rate, meaning the people think the market sentiment for that area is really good. So if it's, uh, I'm going to just throw numbers out there, a four cap rate compared to a two. Two means it's like super hot, like Los Angeles, downtown real estate, Manhattan before the crash. Not, not now, but you know, like Miami is a low cap rate, you know, while places like Detroit, you know, smaller cities uh, like uh, Bakersfield, Kern, you know, areas that are not as desirable have higher cap rates, right? So they're opposite. So uh, what you're talking about is People think and they're buying where they think the market sentiment is really great when it isn't, right? So you shouldn't buy at the same cap rate that you did six months ago because the market sentiment has changed, right? It's gone up, so you should pay less. So that's actually exactly what we're doing. We're Right now, the market sentiment in an area, people are buying at a four, and we're, back, we're actually buying at a 5.3. So we're saying, hey, this property should be worth less than before because everyone thinks they're going to pay less for the same dollar in income, right? Because there's a lot more risk. So it's important to look at that. So that's one, buy at a better cap rate, which we're doing. But two, all the projections of what you do when you buy a property, the projection is what you think you're going to sell at, right? Um, and that takes into the equation, what cap rate or what is the market sentiment going to be when you sell the property so we think the market even though the market sentiment's bad we think the market sentiment's going to be way worse when we sell it so are we still going to make a profit if the market sentiment is worse and then we do what is called a sensitivity analysis you know a lot of doctors will see this but we're like okay Let's do black swan. Rents go down. Occupancy goes down. You know, cap rates go up. Like, let's just throw everything at the wall. And can we still break even, right? And if all that happens, there's probably going to be a lot worse worries in the economy than our apartment. But yeah, you know, we can still cover rents. We could still, we still make like a couple percent, you know, four or 5% profit. I think it's good when the stock market and bonds and bonds are down 25% for the year. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, everything's shifting every day. Like, would you say cap rates like in LA, use an example of two. Is it three now? Is it four? No, so, you know, it, it's, it's easy to think. Um, it, it's, it's more like a log scale. Like uh, a 0 0.1, 0 0.2 makes a huge difference. So, you know, so for example, for our, uh, we're buying at a, 
uh, 5.3, which is pretty, you know, that's like probably Detroit right now. But we're thinking it's going to be a 5.75. So we think it's going to be way worse. So that, you know, even though it's only a 50 basis points or 45 basis points, that's a humongous shift. And then on our sensitivity analysis, we had 100 basis points or 1%. So we go from 5.3 to 6.3. So if that happens, and it's in the Phoenix submarket, if that happens, we're, we're going to be in a world of pain. Like stocks are going to be down, bonds are going to be way worse, there's going to be a huge recession. But it's good to stress test these properties. Like, can it handle all that? You know, just like you st stress test a heart, like, what are the different things, you know, and check the heart, check the lungs. And that's what we put it through the ringer to make sure that all our projections uh, still make sense. And if we can still break even, you know, a couple positive in the green, I think that's a win. So right now you'd say cap rates have moved a little bit, but not a lot. Yeah, like 0 0.1, 0 0.2, not huge difference, but in in relative terms, it's like the butterfly effect. Like that's that's a big difference in real estate. Got it. Well, it's just like interest rates with bonds, right? You know, it's like a small shift. If you get a big shift, it's really bad relative yeah, 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 yeah. compared to a normal year. So I guess, how do you think now with where you're at today, how, how do you think about financial freedom? Like when, when are you financially free, for example? I am financially free probably probably would have been there by now had I not taken so many vacations. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, I probably didn't ha need to have as big of a wedding and uh, sure. probably a lot of stuff, you know, didn't buy a car. Like I, I could have sacrificed more, I think, to get financial freedom or, you know, the financial freedom number I could have moved down. So, you know, there's the there's a fire, financial independence, retire early. You know, a lot of people talk about uh, kind of skinny fire or uh, even fire. candlestick fire <laughs> or uh, you're making, you know, 100,000, 150,000 in, uh, in income and that covers all your expenses. And, you know, that's true uh, for me as well. But I, I want to do fat fire. You know, I want to have plenty, not not just to cover myself, like I want to do, I want to start an art gallery um, that all the money goes to charity um, and I don't take a dime for it. So it takes, you know, it takes, it takes money to make a difference in the world. So absolutely, uh, I'm okay pushing that a little bit further because for, for me is I hate being uh, asked to do anything at specific times. And so, uh, you know, like meetings, whatever, but um, having to be in a certain place at a very certain time, like at the hospital, it really limits where and where I could be and what can I do, you know? So freedom for me would be not having to go to the hospital anymore. I would still be working, right? I wouldn't be financially free from all the other businesses that I have, but my, I would have my time back, you know, and I'd be able to choose uh, when and where to go. When do you want to do that? Is that a year away? Five years away? Like, what do you see for yourself? Uh, no, it's uh, probably within, it probably would have been within a year because I'm very heavily invested in real estate and it's doing pretty well. Um, it's in the positives, but, uh, you know, we're not going to have the outsized returns that we would have had. You know, <laughs> I heard this joke, like to be financially free, I, you know, instead of uh, being born in the 1980s, I should have been buying distressed properties and I'd be rich by now. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of timing issues. It'll all work out, but, and, you know, it just pushes things out a year or so, maybe six months. But, you know, a lot of my income is diversified outside of medicine, which is nice. 
Absolutely. Well, there's different streams of income and, you know, some are more longer term than others, I'm sure, with the way you have things set up. If, if you were talking to a physician that's in residency and they're, they're let's say they're transitioning to practice in June, July of 2023, what, what advice would you give to them knowing what you know today? Try to figure out what you like outside of medicine. And, uh, you know, maybe it's business. Um, I think starting your own practice is a great business venture. You know, a lot of people don't consider themselves entrepreneurs if they have their own practice, but it, it definitely is one. If you like that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity inside medicine. You know, I actually got a promotion at work. Uh, you know, people think like, oh, you know, maybe I'm not that high up in my organization. But, I, you know, I have a decent position. And that's because a lot of the stuff I, br- I learned from entrepreneurship, I actually bring back to my the company that I work for. And I do a lot of education. I do a lot of videos. They actually want me to talk all about us. 401ks, HSAs, and all that stuff, and real estate, you know. So even in, within your own organization, there is a lot of room. Um, and, you know, the position that I have, they actually created it for me uh, because no one had done it before. So there's a lot of opportunity to, to do entrepreneurship, you know, as opposed to entrepreneurship. So don't think you have to go out and start a business. And number two, don't feel like that you need to start something from scratch, you know? So I started my podcast from scratch and it's, it's painful, you know? Uh, it's called From MD to Entrepreneur. And you, you can hear about some of the pain on there, but, you know, starting something from scratch is painful. I, you know, I actually, one of the reasons that I've done so much in just a couple years out of residency is because I started working with Peter, his, uh, Dr. Peter Kim, he created Passive Income MD and we've done, you know, we co-created a course together. We've done conferences. I spoke on his stage, uh, been on his podcast a bunch of times and, you know, it saved me years of uh, doing stuff on my own by, you know, attaching myself and providing value, but attaching myself to him. Uh, and he's like, yeah, you're going to be way wealthier than I am, uh, like way earlier, you know, and it was skipping a bunch of steps and see who's out there doing something interesting and maybe you can help them. I'm sure like even for you, there's probably a ton of stuff that you need help with and like projects that you want to do. You're like, uh, maybe we start a YouTube or maybe we do this. And you're like, okay, I just don't have the bandwidth to do it. But if someone wants to do that, it, you're not just, uh, you're not just helping Dave, but you're creating your own brand within a company, you know? And I got a ton of listeners from my podcast just because I'm associated with Passive Income MD, you know? No doubt I could have done it myself, but it would have taken an extra five to 10 years. So, you know, and don't- And with the White Coat Investor. Yeah, and the White Coat Investor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't feel like you have to start from scratch. I mean, actually most businesses, you know, they have 40, 50% attrition rate. Uh, and if you can attach yourself to a business that's, you know, like a Phoenix that's gone past that, then the chances are you're going to be so successful. You know, most entrepreneurs I see, they're like, maybe they, you know, this one lady, she's has a multi-million dollar company and she used to work for Tony Robbins, you know, and that's, that's how she got big and she got, uh, she did it, you know, they all, all these people will kind of almost like an apprenticeship work with and uh, for all these other people. And, you know, I know there's a, a big move towards getting paid for all your work, but I think there's a lot of ways of getting paid just outside of actual strict dollars. Absolutely. No, fantastic, fantastic advice. That's really good stuff. Um, and then Dr. Parikh is, we mentioned the MD to entrepreneur podcast that you have if people want to find you check you out ask questions how can they do so yeah so a couple resources so 
My email is pranay, P-R-A-N-A-Y at ascentequitygroup.com. Ascentequitygroup.com is our website. You can see me, a picture of me and my family and actually all our families right on the front page. Um, you know, that's why we do this. Uh, the podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, pretty much everywhere. It's called From MD to Entrepreneur. And, it, you know, I uh, interview industry experts. I uh, talk about kind of my own journey, the highs and the lows. You know, one recent podcast I did was talking about how entrepreneurship is very lonely, you know, and how to kind of combat that. And we try to talk about things that maybe other people don't necessarily talk about. And yeah, so I'm e very easy to get a hold of and happy to help anyone that I can. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Any, any closing words of advice? Yeah. You know, uh, the doctor way is to go find a book, go find a course, go to a conference and keep going and keep doing and redoing it. You're never going to feel ready because there isn't a well-worn path in entrepreneurship as there is in medicine, right? Pre-med, medical school, residency, fellowship, attending life, right? But entrepreneurship, the stakes are a lot lower, right? You don't have anyone's life in your hands. So try something, you know, I have many failed projects. You, you haven't heard about them, but there are many failed, you know, but I learned something along the way. And now that each project I do is just more chance of being successful. So the sooner you get started, the sooner you will find that success, you know, and just be ready for setbacks. So they're going to happen, but you already have the skills to get past it. You know, we're, we doctors are natural problem solvers. So there's no doubt you can do it. You just got to start believing in yourself and get started. Love it. Awesome. No, wonderful, wonderful advice. So everyone, make sure to check out his podcast from MD to Entrepreneur and the website and all that kind of stuff. All right, my friends. Well, that wraps up the episode for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Parikh, for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Abe. All right, my friends. Well, that's another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Remember, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Why, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now, I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant, and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30 minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we're not appropriately registered or excluded. 
The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.